0: Go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 17, and as you're turning there, I want you to think about a question. Have you ever had a life-changing, perspective-altering experience? A life-changing, perspective-altering experience? I remember as a child, I went, I don't know how old I was, we went to Mammoth Cave. Anybody ever been to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky? As you can imagine, it's a big cave. It's kind of right there in the name. Thank you. I, one or two people left. It's, it's a mammoth cave. And I, maybe it was because I was so small or it was so big or a bit of both, but it was just Amazing. To walk into this place, it was kind of a narrow opening, and then you get in there and it's just enormous. And then we took a guided tour and they told us like how deep some of the places were that we couldn't see and how high some of the caverns were. And you're all, it's all of it's underground in this mountain. It's just amazing. And I felt so much smaller. You get a sense of just how small you are in this world. Maybe not necessarily life changing, but certainly. Perspective altering. I remember proposing to my wife. Life-changing. <laughs> perspective altering. I remember the day that we were married, about a year after that. And seeing her come forward and standing there looking into each other's eyes and saying our vows. That is life-changing. I remember holding each one of our four children shortly after they were born. And just thinking, this changes Everything, life-changing, perspective-altering. And today in Matthew chapter 17, we're going to see three disciples go somewhere with Jesus and have a life-changing, perspective-altering experience. But in order to understand what we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 17, we need to back way up in Scripture And we need to talk about a guy named Moses. Because Moses had several life-changing, perspective-altering experiences with the presence of God. And that's really important for our passage today. In Exodus chapter 3, when we meet Moses, he is a a shepherd. Actually, if we back up, when we meet him, he's just a baby and then he's kind of a big deal in Egypt. Then he gets in trouble and eventually becomes a shepherd. That's a huge summary right there. You can read it for yourself. Things have not gone so well for him. He's kind of on the run. He's working for his father-in-law, overseeing some sheep, and he's on the side of a mountain and something amazing happens. Maybe you know the story. He sees a bush. It's on fire, but wait, it's not really on fire. It's burning, but it's not really burning. And God speaks to him from this bush. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, we read this. Do not come any closer. This is the voice of God from the burning bush to Moses. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And I want us to notice a a few key details here. The first is God appears in a miraculous way. A way that naturally speaking doesn't make any sense whatsoever. A bush that is on fire but is not consumed. So that when Moses looks at this bush, he's not thinking, oh, weird, a bush that's on fire. He's thinking this is something special. God makes it clear that God is doing something special. The second thing is that God declares who he is. And this often happens when God shows up in Scripture and he's going to speak to his people. He says, look, you need to know who I am. And so he declares to Moses, he's the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The third thing we need to see from this experience that Moses has is how Moses responds. Have you ever wondered what you would do if you saw God face to face? You know, there was a song, I don't know how many years ago, you know I can only imagine what will I do when I'm in heaven. I can only imagine. Well, throughout Scripture, actually, Scripture answers that pretty well for us. We will fall on our face and say, "We are unworthy, and you alone are worthy." And Moses hides his face because he's afraid to look at God. He understands that he is unworthy to be in the presence of the Lord God Almighty. This is what's known as a theophany. Have you heard that word? Theophany. It means an appearance of God. God comes down in some miraculous way to speak to his people. It often happens in the Old Testament on mountains. It's kind of a theme. Not always, but often. Often. God shows up in a way that confirms that it is him. He often uses bright light or fire or smoke or cloud. Those themes run all the way throughout the Old Testament. He says something about himself or declares who he is. And the people respond often in great humility, sometimes falling to the ground in worship. Now, why? Why do they respond this way? See, there's another theme that develops throughout the Old Testament, and that is if anyone, and by that it means if anyone who is a sinner, because that's all of us, if anyone who is a sinner sees the face of God, and by that it means the God who is all perfect and holy, if sin comes into the presence of the all-holy God, those two things are incompatible. And Scripture says that person will die. Die. And people take that and they think, wait a minute. Is God just that mean? Does he just hate us that much? And think about it this way. If you put a pan on the stove, this is kind of good fun at home. If you're, you're beginning to cook, you're getting things out, you put the pan on the stove and you let it heat up, right? And You're getting the food ready. Kids, you can try this at home with close adult supervision. And you take I like taking my hand and I just dip it in a little bit of water and then you just flick it at the stove, right? And what happens? Oh, the water just sits in the pan in a puddle, right? No. Immediately. Just disappears. Well, that's just mean of the pan. It really hates the water. I mean, why is it just out to get to the water? It's not that the pan is anything against the water, it's that the two things are absolutely incompatible. God's holiness and our sin are incompatible. And to understand theophanies, we need to understand that concept that sinners cannot come into the presence of an all holy God unless God makes it possible. Unless God makes it possible. Moses has several other encounters with the Lord's presence throughout his life. God uses him to lead the people out of Egypt to miraculous escape, a miraculous rescue through the Red Sea. You might know the story of the parting of the Red Sea. And he leads them into the desert to a mountain again. In fact, many people believe it's the exact same mountain where he saw the burning bush. And he calls the Israelites there in Exodus chapter 19, and they feel the mountain shake and smoke covers the mountain because the Lord descends on it in fire. You see in the themes here? It's a theophany, the presence of the Lord. And the people are warned to stay back because the area is holy, and they're not. And in Exodus chapter 2, or 20, verse 2, God speaks and he declares who he is. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And you might be familiar with what comes next. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He says, Look, this is who I am. In Exodus 33, Moses has another encounter with God's presence. Moses is up on a mountain, and God God hides him in, in a nook or a cleft of the rock. And God allows Moses to see just a bit of his glory. And he says, you can't see my face or you will die, but I will cause my glory to pass before you and you will see the backside of my glory. I don't even know what that means. But it's an incredible experience that Moses has, seeing some way, shape, or form a portion of the glory of God. And it says, after this encounter, Moses' face glows with the light of God's glory. He comes down and he speaks to the people, the message of the Lord. And then he puts a veil on because the glory fades over time. It's not his glory. It's the Lord's glory. And then Exodus chapter 40, in obedience to the law, the Israelites set up the tabernacle. And the Lord's presence comes down and fills the tabernacle to live among his people. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and the fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. And the story of Moses ends in a unique way. See, God uses him to lead his people miraculously, powerfully. But then they're about to enter the promised land. The whole point that God had worked through Moses leading them to this this place that God had promised to live among them. And they're just about to get there. And God says to Moses, this is as far as you will go. And on a mountain, overlooking the promised land that he has looked forward to for so long, Moses dies. Let's fast forward 600 years. And we meet a man by the name of Elijah. Elijah arguably one of the most famous prophets in all of Scripture. And in 1 Kings, we learn about an experience Elijah has on a mountain. You see, Israel has split into two kingdoms. The promised land is not going so well for God's people. They have been unfaithful. And the northern kingdom has this wicked, horrible king named Ahab. And he is leading the people to worship false gods and idols And Elijah challenges the priests of this false god, Baal, to a contest on the mountaintop. He says, you set up an altar with your sacrifice, and I'll set up an altar with a sacrifice to the one true God. You cry out to your God, I'll cry out to mine, and let's see who answers. Nobody is allowed to light the fire. What a great showdown. It's a powerful passage in scripture. The priests of Baal work all day long, shouting, dancing, screaming, cutting themselves, just going crazy, trying to get the attention of this false god. Moses taunts them, try more, shout louder. Maybe he's indisposed and you need to get his attention. And then around the time of the sacrifice in the evening, Elijah simply gets up and prays. And fire from heaven shoots down, consumes the sacrifice, consumes the altar, consumes all the water that they've poured on it and the trench around it. And God shows up and says, I am the one true God. And then something really interesting happens to Elijah. He runs for his life. And and I remember growing up studying Elijah and my perception of Elijah has changed a lot as an adult because I actually think that Elijah might have ended his life in severe depression. What I see is a man that struggled with incredible doubt and fear. This incredible experience that should have been this life-confirming thing and yet the rest of the time he almost seems angry and bitter and he's definitely scared to death. He runs. And God leads him and cares for him. And God leads him to another mountain. And at 1 Kings chapter 19, God brings him up on this mountain and says he will meet with him. And he brings Elijah out on this cliff face. And it says a great wind blew and smashed rocks against the mountain, but God was not in that. And the mountain shook, but God wasn't in that either. And then he hears this still, small whisper. And God speaks to Elijah. And he basically says, Elijah, keep going. Keep being my prophet. Go appoint this guy king. Go appoint that guy a prophet. Keep going. My plan has not failed. And yet, at the end of Elijah's life on this earth, God's promises have not been fulfilled. The kingdom is still separated in a bitter civil war. Wicked people are still on the throne. And Elijah is taken up into heaven. Both Moses and Elijah experienced the presence of God while they were on a mountaintop. Multiple times, in fact. They both had an experience with the glory of God and yet they both in their lives looking forward to something that was as of yet unfulfilled. Now let's look at Matthew chapter 17 verses 1 through 8 where we go to Jesus. Let me read for us verses 1 through 8. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, "'Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah.' While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. A little bit of context, what's going on in Matthew here. Jesus has declared to his disciples he's on his way to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and then he'll raise from the dead on the third day. And then Peter, being the bright one, gets up and says, no way, Lord. Matthew says he rebukes Jesus, not a good thing to do. And then Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. In verse 24 of chapter 16, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. He's saying, guys, this is going to be hard. But let's go. Trust me. Follow. Let's go. It's in that context then that Matthew introduces this transfiguration. Transfiguration. And so looking at the first three verses here, what we see is that these three disciples that the Lord has chosen, John, James, and Peter, they're kind of the inner circle of the disciples. Jesus spent more personal time with them than with all the disciples. In fact, they're going to be with him in Gethsemane. Jesus invites all the disciples, but he goes on to pray and he invites these three with them or with him. And it says that Jesus is transfigured before them. Transfigured means to be changed into something beautiful. Transfigured before them. It says his face and his clothes shine with a brilliant light like the sun as white as light. They understand they're on the mountaintop. They are witnessing something spectacular in Jesus. Now, in this case, when it says transfigured, Jesus is not changed. He doesn't become this person that is bright light he reveals who he really is. John chapter 1, verse 14, the same John writes this that was there at the transfiguration. He says, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. He doesn't say he became glorious. He says we saw it. The transfiguration is like an unveiling of who Christ is for a moment. Philippians says it this way in verses 6-7 through of chapter 2, Paul writes, Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Paul's writing kind of the other end of the transfiguration. He says, Jesus was in heaven with all the glory of God. And then he puts on flesh. It's like he veiled his divinity. He veiled the display of his infinite glory because nobody could have stood him. Nobody could have been in his presence. You know, you see pictures of Jesus, kind of the traditional ones with the halo over his head. None of that's in scripture. Nobody looked at Jesus and just went, "Ah, he's so holy and divine. They looked at Jesus often and said, who does this guy think he is? Because he just looked like one of them. But here, everything changes That veil that he put on when he was born in the manger and that the disciples got to know him through, suddenly it's peeled back and they see his glory. And the clear implication here is that all the glorious presences of God and the pictures of God throughout the Old Testament, they all come to their fruition in Jesus Christ, transfigured before them, and they see the glory of Jesus, the glory of God. Because Jesus is God. I just can't imagine what this must have been like for these three men. This guy that they had been walking with, they had shared meals with, this guy that they hung out with, they probably joked around with, they had gone to a wedding with, this is God. They see His glory just manifest before them. And what's really astounding here is that it is clear Jesus is not reflecting God's glory It's coming from Him. It's His glory shining forth. This is not like Moses who has to put on a veil because His glory is going to fade because it was actually God's glory. This is Jesus in His own glory, the very glory of God. Verse 3 tells us Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus. Jesus displays His glory. Moses the writer of the first five books of the Old Testament, the law, the leader of God's people, Israel, during that time, comes and is speaking to Jesus, the Son of God. Elijah, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, appears, and he is speaking with the Old Testament, or with the very presence of God, Jesus Christ. Think of the significance here. These two men who had followed God, trusted him, gone through intense hardship, looked forward to the coming of God's promises and the coming of God's kingdom, but they didn't see it in their life. And here they are. And there's a part of me that thinks this is such incredible mercy from God to say, guys, this is what you've been looking forward to. This is it. My son, Jesus. And whether they needed that or not, think of what it meant to the three men just standing there with their jaws on the floor. It really is all about Jesus. Everything is led up to Jesus. What does all this mean? Maybe the, the disciples there could help us. Maybe Peter will say something helpful to explain this to us. No, unfortunately Peter says he wants to put up three shelters or tents, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. Now, we can go into Feast of Tabernacles and all that. That's not actually what was going on around this time, but there might be some implication there. But I really think what's going on is Peter's going, this is awesome. Let's stay right here for a while. I almost wonder if in the back of his mind he's thinking, man... Moses and Elijah and Jesus will hang out, and they're here on the mountain. Think of all the people that could come and listen to them. Man, this is going to be great. People are going to believe in Jesus over and over and over again. But notice what he says. This is crucial. He treats them all the same. Let's set up a tent for Moses. Let's set up a tent for Elijah. Let's set up a tent for Jesus. Now, I don't know where Peter is at in his understanding of Jesus at this point, but I think that's really telling, especially because God interrupts him. I love how Matthew says this in verse 5. While he was still speaking, Peter is blabbering on, as Peter had a tendency to do. And God just interrupts him. Now, he's God. He can do that. It's not considered rude when you're the creator of all things. So he interrupts him. And it says, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Where are they? They're on a mountain. What do they see? They see a cloud. What do they hear? They hear the voice of God. And what does God say? Because remember the pattern. God shows up and God says something about Himself. This is who I am. God shows up here and what does He say? This is my Son. God says, you want to know who I am? Look to Jesus. This is my Son whom I love, whom I am well pleased with. And then He says, and I almost think this is especially for Peter's benefit. Listen to him. When he says he's going to the cross and the resurrection, don't try to stop him. When you doubt his ways, don't interrupt him. Listen to him. God tells them to listen to his son, Jesus. Peter had treated Moses and Elijah and Jesus almost like equal and God just clears that away and just points to Jesus. Do you notice? God says nothing about Elijah and Moses. Nothing. And it's not because he's rude. It's because Jesus is so far greater. And I'm sure at that moment, Elijah and Moses are just like, "Uh uh-huh, we're fading in the background because it's all about him. It's all about him. Everything here is about Jesus. And look at how the disciples respond. They fall to the ground. Because they realize something. They're in the presence of God. Now picture the scene. They've just had this holy encounter. The presence of God has descended on the mountaintop. And there they are. They've heard the very voice of God. They're seeing the very presence of God. Elijah and Moses are there somewhere. And they fall to the ground. And then the scene clears away. And they look up. And they see no one except Jesus. And the Greek here is actually so strong. They see Jesus. Jesus himself. Only Jesus. This grand picture of the presence of God. And they look up and all they see is Jesus. Do you get this? The whole picture. The manifestation of God's glory. The theophany. The very voice of God. It's all about Jesus. Jesus. And that's what they see at the end. The clear implication here is that Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Elijah. If you've been with us in the the nine o'clock hour, Mitch has been going through the book of Hebrews and it starts out in the past. God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's the Jesus that they're seeing. What a life-changing experience. Here on the mountaintop, they experience the glory of God, hear the voice of God, and they look and they see Jesus, the Son of God, in all his glory. And they know that whenever they're with Jesus, they are in the very presence of God. That changes everything. Now, as I think we can identify with, the disciples have some questions and I got to be honest, I'm a little frustrated with these three men after this encounter because the questions they ask are not the questions I would have. I want to go through these last couple of verses quickly because it's kind of a technical discussion. But I want you to see where Jesus points them to as he answers these questions. Because he's going to point them to the cross. Look at verses 9 through 13. It says... As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the son of man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Right after this amazing experience, Jesus does something he's done before. And as far as I understand, this is actually the last time in Matthew he'll do this. He tells them not to tell anybody something that they've seen or something that he said. In this case, this encounter. These three men are going to go back with the rest of the 12 and they have seen something and they are not supposed to tell them about it. And he says, don't tell them about it until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Because Jesus understands that knowing his glory and his perfect identity will only be properly understood when we see the cross and the resurrection. You can't know Jesus without the cross and the resurrection. So he tells them, wait until then. And I wonder how soon it was after the, resurrections that the, after the resurrection that these three came running in going, oh, we're so excited to tell you this thing that we've been holding on to for so long. But then they asked this question about Elijah. In Old Testament prophecy, Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, God says he'll send a messenger to prepare the way. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 it says Elijah will come and kind of make all things right. And then the Messiah will come. And here, Jesus has said that he is going to die. And their question is, wait a minute. If Elijah has to come before the Messiah and you're about to die and Elijah's going to make all things right, this doesn't make any sense to us whatsoever. That's kind of where they're at. I think we can identify with the confusion a little bit. What in the world are you talking about? And in verses 11 and 12, Jesus explains, John, or Elijah will come. And later on, the disciples say that they understand he's talking about John the Baptist, this new Elijah who would prepare the way. But then Jesus clarifies, Elijah will come. But just like Jesus, John the Baptist suffered and died. And Jesus is on his way to suffer and die. And he has called his disciples in the passage right before this, come follow me, take up your cross, be willing to suffer and die. And so he's linking this idea that all things will be made right with the idea that you have to go through the cross and the resurrection. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. The Old Testament promises point ahead to the cross and the resurrection. Everything that God has said, all of the promises to his people are are focused in on the cross of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, as the new Elijah, pointed to this. Jesus is explaining this to his disciples. The disciples have to understand that they are going to suffer. Many of them are going to die. And yet the promise of the resurrection and salvation through the cross of Jesus runs through all of it. So what do we do with this incredible passage? This is a life-changing, perspective-altering experience. For these three men, they see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. They know now they are walking with God. For us, we need to take their witness and apply it to our life and say, this is God. Some of you grew up in church and hopefully you were taught that from a very young age. I'll tell you though, one of the sermons I remember hearing in my life was a sermon, I think it was an Easter morning, on this passage. It was at a church in downtown Chicago. I was a student at Moody Bible Institute. And and there was a church I went to occasionally. Don't judge me, but it was a very liberal church. And and it wasn't that I believed or agreed with them whatsoever, but I I was getting great biblical teaching. I'd grown up in a great biblical church, and I just kind of wanted to see how some other Christians did things. And I sat through a sermon on the transfiguration where the pastor was unwilling to say that Jesus is God. I was stunned. I thought, surely in this passage, he has to admit that this is a miraculous display of the glory of God. And he danced around it the entire sermon. We have to understand that this changes everything. Jesus is God, he's not just a great teacher or a great prophet or a great example. Jesus is God born in a manger. Jesus is God walking with and teaching his people. Jesus is God transfigured on the mountain. Jesus is God hung on a cross to die. And Jesus is God risen from the dead. And I want to go where Matthew ends his gospel. And we've done this so many times, but it's so appropriate. Matthew, at the very end, he says this, then Jesus came to them as disciples and said, this is after the resurrection right as he's about to ascend into heaven, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and don't miss this and bring the transfiguration into this and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Every time somebody had experience with the presence of God in the Old Testament, it was a momentous, life-changing experience. And here the Son of God says, I am God and I am with you always. Friends, this is life-changing. Perspective altering. When we truly understand who Jesus is, And what he has done for us through the cross and the resurrection. And the truth that this glorious Christ, the very presence of God, is with us always. This is the most life-changing, perspective-altering experience we can ever have. This changes everything. Tomorrow when you wake up, if you've been saved by Jesus Christ, the glory of God is with you. When you go to work and you're you're in that, that moment where you're kind of being challenged in your faith, Jesus, the glory of God, is with you. When you're struggling with doubts, stop and remind yourself, I'm in the very presence of God right now. He is with me. When we are saved by Jesus, He promises us He is always with us. We live in the presence of God. Unashamed and unafraid. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I wonder if as Matthew wrote this, based on what these three men told him, if he was struggling to put it into words, the truth of this passage, the impact of this passage is is more than we can bear. It's more than we can wrap our minds around. And God, I know one day those saved by your Son, Jesus Christ, will stand in heaven together and we will see Jesus, the Lamb of God, in all of His splendor and glory. And we too will fall down and worship and praise you forevermore. And God, until that day, Strengthen us. Encourage us with this glimpse that these three men had now spoken to us as a firm witness. That glory, your Son, our Savior, is with us always. Father, help us to accept, to trust in, and to live out this life-changing, perspective-altering experience. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray.